Hey, welcome to the podcast. We have a great show for you today. We're going to be talking about this new Omicron variant, and Dr. Mari is going to give a lot of really great information about it. We're also going to talk about Twitter's CEO that resigned, Mr. Jack Dorsey, and what that means and kind of what his uh, colorful history with the company has been. And we're going to talk about the Theranos trial and all of this new exciting information about all this sort of fraud and misinformation and forging documents and all of that. And then we're going to jump into the tech word of the year, and then we're going to wrap some things up with Apple's lawsuit against the NSO group. All this and more coming up on the Sunday Brunch. Enjoy. Hey, it's time for Brunch. You are joining Matt and uh, my wonderful friend and co-host, Dr. Marty. And this is the weekly podcast where we talk about everything about science, medicine, and just about anything else. Sometimes we throw some Marvel in there um, and also some great cooking tips, which we got into uh, last week. Uh, Dr. Marty, how has your week been? Uh, so far, it's been back to the grind. So you, you kind of have your little break in the holiday, the one that happens before the mega holiday break, right around Christmas, New Year time. So this is the one where you think you have respite coming, and then the rug is pulled out from under you right when you get back, and you just kind of go from zero to 60 all the way through to the rest of the holiday season. So I'm back in it, but actually it was a pretty good week. I had a great Thanksgiving weekend, and so uh, I'm still kind of riding on the high from that and, and moving into the snowless Southern California uh, landscape while I can see pictures of snow from other parts of this fine country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's unusually warm here in Colorado. So it uh, it meant a lot of people were putting holiday lights out. So because it was good weather for it. Uh, typically in Colorado, you're doing it when it's 30 degrees outside, the snow is blowing sideways. So people were kind of getting into the holiday spirit um, early this year. Lots and lots of lights on my street. Is are, Have people started decorating your neighborhood? Uh, I, you know what? I haven't noticed a lot of that. They were uh, around the Thanksgiving time where I was, everybody had some decorations going up. It was actually quite a bit. But interestingly enough, there were some supply chain issues at places typically people had gone for holiday things. They couldn't find those kinds of decorations. So uh, uh, not to create a massive rush, but maybe they're not as available either. And people are granted when people have holiday decorations. Everybody knows they're in a box in a garage somewhere that they're taken out once a year or in the basement. <laughs> That they can put. It's not like they suddenly need holiday decorations. Everybody has something. Yeah, yeah, it's a it, yeah, it's a process in my household. We have multiple trees, so it takes a little bit to get everything set up and unpacked and haul these big, massive green bags from the basement upstairs. So, uh, but we're we're almost there. We're uh, two thirds done, and then we so we sort of gave up. So uh, we're gonna I'm, I'm gonna have to get back to it uh, next weekend for sure. So, All but right. we are gonna have to get started off with some big COVID news. We have a new variant on the block. It dominated the news cycle this week. So, Dr. Marty, what's your take on this? Yeah, so if anybody had gone into their Thanksgiving weekend thinking that it was going to be quiet and a time to relax a little and enjoy family time, um, depending on where you were, uh, you had some disruptions. Uh, on November 24th of last week in South Africa, they had mapped a couple sequences of what they thought was typical genome mapping of through, through taking a PCR of the COVID virus. And they noticed there was a section of it that just wasn't mapping very well. And then they found that this pattern was repeating on a few of the different PCR tests. And some of these samples are coming from Botswana, some from South Africa. And they investigated a little further and found that there were a ton of mutations in a particular region which is why the PCR wasn't picking up on this particular subregion very well. So then they did a mapping of the whole genome sequence. And a day later, there was a press conference uh, coming out of South Africa that says, okay, we have a new variant. It is quickly spreading in South Africa, and it has 30 mutations from the original COVID uh, coronavirus that came out of uh, Wuhan that caused COVID-19. So that sent everybody into, I think we're okay, but maybe we're not. So then what the questions were, where exactly were these mutations taking place? And then you bring in the computational modelers, you bring in the epidemiologists, the everybody who needs to, to go and, and work around this problem together, because there's quite a few questions you have to ask of if this is really a variant of interest or a variant of concern, which are the next questions that are asked by the large health organizations. A variant of interest is literally what it sounds like. I think I want to follow this. I'm not sure. Let's see what the data tells us. And with COVID, everything is a surprise, so we usually have to wait a little bit. Modelers, the people who do this kind of 
of work. They give us hints of what we can expect, but you don't know till you know what it actually looks like in the population. So it quickly went into the realm of variant of concern, which is beyond of interest, because most of these mutations that they noticed were taking place, or many of them at least, were taking place in regions that are going to make the virus better at evading antibody responses from either um, the natural immunity or from uh, the vaccination, uh, that the spread was quite large and it is, uh, it is indicative of it being more infectious and transmissible and that some of the regions where the binding took place in the spike protein are better at latching onto our cells than previous versions of the spike protein. So the mutations suggested that they've started back in September, October. This has taken a little while to get here, but because so many coming out of the, the population in South Africa, they were finding this in, really drew some concern. Now, not that many in South Africa had actually had it. I mean, it, yes, there's a, there's a big spread everywhere. And in South Africa, about 25% of, of the population had been vaccinated. Um, so it leaves more room for there to be more mutation in. And this is true of the North-South divide in general, the global North, the global South, that there just isn't as much vaccine available. And in places where there isn't as much vaccine available, you're going to have more mutation. Uh, and this is going to be one of the themes that we have with COVID. So between the spread, the fact that it binds better, that it's more transmissible, that it's probably going to be better at evading an immune response, um, that that prompted a series of very alarming uh, policy changes to take place. And so the United States being one of them that is not accepting flights from South Africa and a couple other regions, I think, including uh, Botswana, where a lot of this was originally uh, discovered, uh, a number of countries following suit. Other countries like Israel are saying that they're not accepting flights from anywhere. Japan is another one. Uh, we clearly have the signs of panic and certainly of clickbait of all of the news sources right now. But I do have to say that really, really, we don't know yet. Really, we have to wait. We have to see what the experimental evidence shows, and there are a number of experiments that need to be done. We have to wait and see what we actually can learn from South Africa, because we're going to learn a lot more. And the data that's going to come out is going to come out in the next couple of weeks, and it's going to be really important to monitor. And it's hard to say panic, but don't panic, because that's what our policy changes are indicating. But I actually, and I'm the first to worry, I'm actually advocating patience also. This is what most of the science journalism is advocating, and I and I completely understand why. Well, no, I really appreciate you uh, kind of going into some depth in this, because, yeah, I think it has been really clickbait panic news uh, this whole week about this. Um, you know, when you talk about the vaccines, there has been sort of mixed uh, feedback coming back on the news is, is people saying, you know, if you have the booster shot, that will uh, help you out significantly. So what I'm hearing is there isn't enough information to make that leap. Is that is that kind of your take on this? Right. So imagine that when you create neutralizing antibodies that come from a booster shot or from the initial, you know, double jam a double jab from the vaccines or, or from the Johnson, whatever one you're using, um, you, you usually create a, a couple different kinds of antibodies that will bind in a couple different spots. And most of them have, it's not an all or none. It's like fitting into a size seven shoe when you're a size seven and a half or an eight, or maybe more severely, uh, you're fitting into a seven and you've got a size nine or 10. Do you want to cover the toes? Do you want to cover the whole thing? And so the more mutations we have, the worse that shoe fits. Does it mean you can't fit a part of your foot in there that makes it completely un useless? No, like it still has some usefulness to you. So the question is, if you have more antibodies, even if they're not the perfect fit, does it do a better job of neutralizing it? And the answer is yes, it should theoretically do a better job of neutralizing it, even if the size or the shape is a little bit more off than it had been previously. So it would be assumed that a booster, because the antibodies do kind of the levels fall off after six months, it would provide more protection. And certainly, the reasons that we don't talk about, because we're keeping it under a biological argument right now and not a social one, is that we're in the heaviest travel season of the year. This was during Thanksgiving in the United States, but everybody travels during uh, Christmas and the New Year, and that's a global thing, it's very common. And so this makes a big difference 
um, in terms of what kind of protections people have, and the fear of overwhelming hospitals again. So um, there are some policy decisions that are being made that are based on people's behavior. And, and, and additionally, in the Northern Hemisphere, we've got colder weather, so people are gathering inside um, to kind of you know, get the alarms going again, to make people cognizant and, and, and uh, not really relaxed about this. But again, we don't know what it actually means yet. We have a lot of theories and there are a lot of tests that need to be done. And some of which, you know, there's, um, there, there are like a number of parameters you have to have the boxes checked for to really, really be concerned. And so the first one is, is it more transmissible? Because if it's less transmissible, it's not going to matter. Delta is going to stay the world's most common variant. And that's just going to be what it is. It doesn't matter what this one is. Um, is it better at escaping the immune response? If it's worse at escaping the immune response, then those that are vaccinated would care much less. The United States government would probably not have made the the uh, policy changes that it made it, that it made it, that it made. Uh, but, you know, if it was, if, if, it, and it seems to look like it might be better at evading this immune response than worse. And we do have to be more careful. So if I if I said that in any confusing way before, just to reiterate, if it's worse at evading the immune response, we wouldn't care. Um, if it's better at evading the immune response, then we do care. The next question is how severe disease do we actually get? That one's wide open. So what we don't know right now is if in South Africa, um, where it's seems to be spreading, uh, do we find higher prevalence of hospitalizations or death from it? There is one anecdotal story that is floating around the media right now, which is another piece of clickbait that comes from one of the original reporting physicians who said she had a number of patients uh, with this version of COVID and they all had milder symptoms. And so if you have a, have a variant that has milder symptoms, uh, and it's more transmissible, then in fact, it's a very different prescription of how countries are going to deal with this than the securer measures that were being taken uh, by them in the past. In fact, it would be very interesting to see how all of the countries respond if they find that it's actually a milder variant. Now, one person said this, we clearly don't know, the data is not there yet. Um, another thing that's uh, a little, that, that, that requires some uh, clarity still, is that while a number of people in South Africa at the same time seem to be sequencing positive for this Omicron variant, as it's called, and people are debating the name Omicron, uh, the Omicron variant is, uh, we don't actually know if it's spreading as much as it is. It's completely possible that there was one super spreader event that all the people were at in this one week and so it skews the data to make it look like this is spread across all of the people coming in who are sequenced in South Africa. So we don't really know yet of how widely it's spread. And um, that's going to be necessary to determine as well. The other couple areas that we're going to have to determine are the experiments that are done directly on the blood of people who have gotten over COVID, who have, who have recovered from it and to expose it to this new variant in a Petri dish to see, or in a cell culture dish, to actually see, do those antibodies neutralize it in vitro or in a laboratory setting? And that's gonna take a couple weeks still, and everybody is, is holding their breath for that. So all of those things have to happen before we really have a clear picture on how to proceed forward. And what we're seeing is, with Omicron, is just proceed with caution, just proceed. It's not a time to panic, but just be cautious. Well, you know, another question that just came up this week is around sort of the, the policy that you mentioned. So, you know, with President Trump, there was definitely a um, he was definitely critiqued for sort of uh, dragging his heels on policy in regards to travel and travel restrictions. And, you know, with Delta and now with with Omicron, there's uh, these reactions by not only the U.S., but with other countries, um, you know, from from my vantage point, it's like, well, you should restrict travel until you know more and prevent the spread. Um, but also, you know, I heard on the other side this week, too, that uh, there were people like these countries are reacting too quickly without enough information. Um, is it better to err on the side of caution when these countries are saying we're going to restrict travel 
wait and see because we don't want it coming into our country? I mean, what, what is your take on, on these policy decisions? There's a couple parts to that question. And so the first is, I think in the immediate, and part of it's my personality, is I wouldn't be a wait and see if something is really that highly transmissible. Uh, it alarmed the people that were mapping it. It alarmed the scientists who were looking at it. They, they, were, they were surprised at how many mutations had occurred. And so, and, and, and it looks considerably different than the COVID that had um, been widely spread in the beginning of 2020 and late 2019. So that's one piece. But given that you're concerned, I do think that it's a good idea to be as transparent as possible and the world needs to share that kind of transparency. The converse side of this argument is that if you have a place like South Africa, who is essentially going to be sanctioned for reporting this data, or Botswana that will essentially be sanctioned for reporting this data, um, it disincentivizes the sharing of this data um, with the world because it hurts their economies in a way that might be unfair in the future. So in a purely hypothetical situation, and I'm going to keep it as purely hypothetical, let's say that the Omicron variant is a far more mild variant, like let's say it's as mild as the common cold, but it's way more transmissible and it's going to break through all of our defenses once we get it. Do you think that South Africa should be banned from travel if it's really just a common cold? And if in fact you're an epidemiologist or an immunologist, there's also an argument to be made that you want people to get sick by Omicron because if it's not deadly, if it's just mild and you just have cold symptoms for a few days, that will provide further immunity from the nastier variants and it will create herd immunity across the world very quickly. And so South Africa or Botswana might suffer something massive and they would have been disincentivized to share this and it might turn out to be something that they actually truly to benefit the world would we'd want it to spread. Now this is strictly hypothetical. Please do not go back and, and say like, you know, Dr. Marty said, because we don't know. You don't know this stuff. Uh, but in some ways I see the other argument that it was a little premature to, to go there because we don't really know yet. I err on the side of caution. I think that public health measures are something that you could take with very little risk of, of backlash. I do think that for countries that are harboring uh, mutations, which will predominantly focus on the global south, and remember the US doesn't sequence as much, or we haven't at least historically, I don't know if we are now. And so it favors a place like the US so that we can you know, be getting into other countries as much as we wanted to, that there is a very clear inequity that exists with the reporting of this data. And we should address that in particular because we should have some kind of understanding that we're as transparent as possible. So disincentivizing is the worst thing you can do because then people will just, you know, conveniently not report things. And that's not what we want to have happen. But on the other side, you know, like I, I do understand the, the need for transparency and to understand what all of the data is telling us and to be able to critically think through what that means so that we don't jump to conclusions and go into panic mode because this isn't panic mode yet. It's just, it's, it's like pre-panic mode and, and possibly not even not even useful. Yeah, and I know it's still early to tell, but I mean, is there just going to be just ongoing boosters? I mean, as these bad variants show up, I mean, are we going to have to, I mean, we, we're just coming into the booster shot. Delta was a big concern. Many health, uh, you know, a lot of local health departments are saying mask mandates are back into effect because we're seeing ICU levels at, at over 100% in some situations. Um, I still recognize that that's early, but um, are boosters just going to be kind of a part of our future? Um, yes, they've thought this for a long time, that boosters were going to be part of the future. But here's something else to understand, and this is specifically true for an mRNA vaccine. You can, and this is what's so exciting about the technology. If you can sequence the new spike variant of Omicron, you can also very quickly create the new variant of, oh, sorry, I have to correct myself. It was 30 amino acids different, not 30 mutations different. It's, it's, it's a different level of mutation. There's, it's, it's very different than the original Wuhan version. Um, so you have, um, you have the capacity to look at the, the sequence right in front of you, and you can immediately translate that to a new vaccine. And one of the one of the heads of one of the big mRNA vaccines recently said, I think like, give us a hundred days, 
we'll have an updated mRNA vaccine for the Omicron variant that we could make available to everybody. And of course, you do have to you have to do the compliance, you have to do the safety, you have to do those kinds of things with it. It'll take a little longer. Uh, but it's not all that different of how a flu vaccine works in that way. They'll always be sequencing, they'll always be updating and sequencing. So right now, and this is a big difference, the boosters that we're getting are not updating for the different variants. The boosters that we're getting were the original variant from the original sequence that is now 30 amino acids different from, from this one. So it does provide some protection still, but it's not gonna provide really targeted protection. It'll be the wrong shoe size, but might work well enough that you can wear a night out and it, it, still, it still binds the way you need it to bind. Uh, if you do create a new vaccine with this new updated sequence, you could probably get it to bind well enough after appropriate safety precautions are taken that every year, very quickly, they can adapt to this. When you ask are boosters going to be necessary, yes, we know this. Um, but one of two things, the other thing going on, I should say that, that you imagine in a pathway of a virus that's been around a long time, this happens with lots of viruses, is that it mutates in one of two directions. It mutates in a direction where, uh, well, I guess more than two directions. And you can, can mutate in the direction where it becomes deadlier before it can replicate, which is going to cause its own extinction because it doesn't have the hosts to spread it around as quickly anymore. Or it can mutate in the direction of more infectious, less deadly, which will also mutate itself out of its, its nest. So we learn to co-evolve and, and coexist with it. That's why so many viruses work the way they do. They kind of just co-evolve with us. So they're not as deadly. The flu's not as deadly anymore. The colds are not as deadly anymore. And they can change a little bit. But once you get the very transmissible, not so deadly version, then you kind of you kind of stay within a realm of 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 uh, a bugaboo more than more than it be a pandemic. So we don't know. We don't know what this means yet. And a lot of advice this week about how people can protect themselves. What are you doing? I mean, what what, what kind of advice would would you yeah, give I'm, people? I'm not the, I'm not the best example, but I think that you know international travel to those destinations. If you're in the United States and you want to fly somewhere, I'd, I'd be careful. I think that uh, pay attention to symptoms. Don't do anything all that differently than you did last holiday season. Uh, where you imagine if we didn't have the vaccine, that you kind of respond the same way right now. But for the next two weeks, just chill. Don't, don't decide one way or another that you need to go hardcore. Just let the scientists get back to you and be critical the way the data is coming out to understand how to in interpret it and what it actually means for the long run. Because a lot of the new sources that are coming out um, are saying the same thing with really, really catchy articles. The, the titles are really catchy, but they're, they're clickbait in a lot of ways. It, it is possibly scary, but so many things are possibly scary. So that would be my advice for everybody is don't go there yet. Just, just wait, like hurry up and wait. Be ready, be vigilant. Um, we know how to handle this though. I did want to say that uh, I am reporting to you as a consumer of science. I am somebody who has advanced degrees in understanding scientific literature, and that is how I'm sharing the information with you. I am not a licensed clinician, and so people please keep in mind that if you actually need health advice and you need to have particular concerns met, those are actually met best by your doctor, your physician, your nurse practitioner, whoever is your, your healthcare practitioner that you have that relationship with. Those are the people that you should be asking those specific questions to. For those theoretical, societally wide kinds of questions, that's what we talk about here on the show. And we're very happy to answer questions. So um, as this is an interesting development, we would love to hear back from you on this. Please feel free to email us, contact us um, with any questions or concerns you might have, some of which might be best meant for your clinician, but others that are, are happening at a more theoretical biology level or happening at a, at a population level, uh, we're very interested in talking about on this show. For sure. Well, thank you so much for your advice on this. I know this has been a very uh, concerning story this week, for sure. Uh, before we jump into our tech news, let's take a quick break and hear a message from our sponsors. This week's episode is brought to you by Wet Panda Dry Bags. You know, it's pretty basic to think about dry bags, but it's so important. 
You know, when we're headed out to paddleboard or we're headed out to hike, um, I reach for my dry bag all the time because, you know, I have a digital camera, I have different equipment with me, and I am not always confident that my backpack is completely waterproof. So I just tuck it into my dry bag and I know that it's going to stay safe. And I even pack a wet panda bag in my gym bag because, you know, if I'm swimming, I can toss my swimming suit into the dry bag and close it up. And I know that the rest of my bag isn't going to get wet and nasty. So check out Wet Panda. They are exclusively sold on eBay. Just search Wet Panda dry bags and look for that panda paw. Thank you so much, Wet Panda, for your sponsorship of the Sunday Brunch. And we are back. Which which mega company are we talking about today? <laughs> oh, we got all kinds of stories this week in the land of tech. Uh I'm going to start with the big one, and that is uh, Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, resigned this week. <sighs> yes. Uh, you know, and a lot of, you know, at the time, a lot of, uh, so I'm just going to say, at the time of this recording, there was still a lot of information. There is a lot of rumor in regard to why he resigned. It was an effective immediately. So there's a lot of discussion of whether he was shoved out. Uh whether, you know, he just had enough. Um, and if you don't know a lot about Jack Dorsey, uh, you know, he has been a very interesting CEO. Um, of course, you know, I think everyone knows what Twitter is. Our last president made Twitter famous, uh, it being one of the biggest social media platforms in, you know, in our time. Um, and Jack has always sort of been this very interesting leader. Um, you know, he grew a very long beard. He, he is a great advocate of Bitcoin, had a lot of very strange ideas. And his time at Twitter has been kind of controversial. He was actually forced out. Then he came back in, forced the other CEO out. Uh, they kind of played musical chairs. There's been a lot of rumors um, around, uh, you know, people trying to force him out of the company. He felt very strongly a founder should be there. Um, there's actually a great article uh, in Vanity Fair that uh, I, I really recommend everyone read. It's by uh, Nick Bilton. And uh, it, there's actually been kind of books about the origin of Twitter and where it started. And uh, Jack has had just kind of a rough time. And he doesn't know, I mean, when he actually started with Twitter and, and he's sort of been critiqued at, up until this point of not really knowing how to run a business. And that was one of the mm. reasons that he was sort of ousted as CEO. And then he you know, fought his way back. Um, so a lot of rumors here, but I do feel like there have been some times during uh, Jack's leadership where he has, you know, made some pretty good decisions, uh, you know, you know, for the platform. But you can't argue with the track record. Uh, Twitter has not grown by leaps and bounds, nowhere near like Facebook's growth. Um, you know, they have tried some new things. They have tried to acquire some companies, but nothing that has been massively wild, uh, incredible growth type of products. Um, t Twitter has just kind of done its thing. And before President Trump became president, uh, it wasn't trending in the right direction. It wasn't growing by leaps and bounds. Um, as a matter of fact, it kind of became kind of the dumpster fire of the internet. There was a lot of just bad things going on on Twitter. Uh, they were kind of being critiqued for not having good moderation and a lot of bots and all those type of things. They have since then tried to correct that. President Trump showed up and, uh, you know, he was one of the best things to ever have that platform because it kind of pulled an audience back onto Twitter because they wanted to kind of see what was going on. And so um, as a CEO uh, who has, you know, responsibilities to his shareholders, uh, the company has not been growing, you know, significantly under his leadership. So this sudden announcement um, was was definitely kind of shook up the, the tech world. And they have announced a, you know, a new leader. Uh, and I and, and I I'm, I'm going to butcher his name, but it's uh, Parag Agrawal, um, who is their chief technology officer, and uh, he's going to be taking the helm. Uh, before that, you know, the company said we had no plan B; it was going to be Jack or everything. Uh, as as was covered in the Vanity Fair article, it looks like they do have a plan B. So, um, a lot of rumors on this one uh, about about kind of what happened. But uh, uh, Marty, I know that this has certainly been a, a you know, a very interesting sort of rumor or gossip column kind of story this week. But uh, I mean, what do you think with, with the information coming out so far on this? Well, it's interesting. First of all, I, I know nothing about Prague Agrawal, nothing, um, because I don't usually follow uh, CTOs or, you know, the, the people that aren't in, in the limelight. But that being said, when you talk about the mega figures of all these giant tech companies, 
I had gotten the sense, mostly from our conversations, that Jack Dorsey was probably on the better side. If you were to look at like the the light side of the Force versus the dark side of the Force, that he probably was kind of Jedi-ish um, because he he did things that were more socially responsible than others, and he was kind of our contrast figure in some of the stories that we shared. Uh, I did see his name quite a bit up in this in the inflation that he was talking about. I've seen his name quite a bit in terms of the criticism of other companies. Uh, but he seemed like somebody that was more relatable and more um, more focused on product improvement rather than growth. And so some of what you're telling me, it just hits me a little bit dishearteningly because if your end point is just growth, and for instance, there are other companies we talk about where growth seems to be happening without without any kind of boundaries, um, then aren't we actually being punitive toward what we're, would actually be good for the world rather than what's big for the world? And that's oversimplifying the case, I know, but I kind of cringed when you were telling me about this, especially that it didn't grow enough. I was like, eh. Yeah, no, I think when it comes to platforms like Twitter, you know, we have talked about the, the social responsibility aspect of it, uh, but growth looks, you know, at least for me, it you know, comes in different ways. I think um, Twitter has been critiqued for not having really great functionality. And they can grow their user base by making some pretty simple changes. And Twitter has struggled to accomplish that. Um, there's also, you know, sort of these trends and these things that we're seeing in social media platforms where Twitter has kind of dragged its heels where the other ones sort of copy and duplicate features and try to roll in very common features into their platform. And so we've just sort of seen this Twitter just sort of lacking. Now, there's two sides of the fence. There is the side that says, you know, hey, um, we want Twitter to remain the same, like the good old fashioned, you know, very limited on characters. It's a short burst kind of thing. Um, but on the other side is, is people are saying, you know, hey, I want some more advanced features, some of the features that I see in some of the other platforms. Um, and that would help sort of grow this user base. And without growth, these platforms can't stick around. So we, we need to see where people are coming and they're, you know, there's advertising, there's marketing, those type of things. So I think there is a bit of a happy medium here, but when they lost, um, when it was kind of filled with bots and people that that weren't really real and they uh, were really slow to moderate really some of the sure. nasty, horrible aspects sure, of sure, Twitter, sure. Um, it kind of kept people from getting into the platform because they weren't really taking good care of it. So so yeah, you're right. I, I, I don't always like how they're always constantly chasing growth, but I I feel like uh, under his leadership, it's been really slow. And, and the best thing that happened was was our former president that sort of attracted them, which isn't isn't going to be the you don't want that to be the main driver of what's driving people to your platform. You want it to have features and things that attract people and you want content that's sort of pulling you in. And I think that there's a socially responsible way of, of doing that. Um, but we weren't just seeing it. We, we, we just haven't been seeing it. They've acquired some other companies and they just haven't done much with it. And they've rolled out a couple features that just didn't land. So, you know, what's so interesting about this story and the way that it's being framed is that it's coming right after we talk about the story of Omicron and the story of the coronavirus, because both of them are actually mimicking the same process. One is them doing it in a kind of a, a market and in the, the tech market, and the other one's doing it around a human health. It's the idea that both are trying to adapt and grow um, as fast as possible and at, at this accelerated scale, such that they're trying to innovate to take over whatever other spaces have not been taken over before. And because we're such a connected world, things happen so quickly and the stakes keep on getting higher and higher, we're seeing two versions of this kind of evolution happening. One form of evolution being a virus, the other form of this evolution being technology, specifically social media, but a lot of these these, these technological uh, platforms, uh, they're going through the same process. They're just very different outcomes because this is maybe more of the norm that we should get used to living in. Yeah, and I think, you know, and, and we find this a lot in technology where these founders really struggle with the sort of getting in the middle of things. Like the company sort of reach this very high pinnacle and they kind of get in the way. 
And, and I think that there is sort of this evolution, and I think sometimes it's by they're forced to do it, or sometimes they come to the own realization that maybe they need to shift or change. Um, I mean, we've seen Jeff Bezos, you know, you know, he's kind of transitioned into a different role. He's let other people sort of take the mm-hmm. helm. Um, we've seen other large tech companies where the founders have now said, you know, and I think it's, it's very common, uh, they're not good people managers. And so you end up kind of needing, you you have those personalities that I think are really best suited for building things, but then you need those people who are really great at operations and really great at people to sort of take the company into, um, you know, the next level. I think Microsoft, their current CEO is doing amazing things to kind of grow and change and evolve the company, arguably in a much different direction than like Bill Gates would take it. Cause that wasn't, you know, sort of his model. I think the same could be said for Jack as like his vision for what Twitter is, um, at least from my vantage point, was sort of limited. It's sort of in this box where somebody else could take it and say, you know, that may have been your vision, but now we need Twitter to evolve to meet the needs of, you know, um, this this user base. Um, so I think I think we're seeing a couple of these things. I mean, I I always sort of questioned uh, for a long time, uh, and there are sort of a lot of rumors about this. I don't know how much of it is true, so you know, please don't quote me on it. But it was like Uber and Lyft for a long time. On Lyft, if you scheduled a car, you could tip on the app. For a really long time, Uber, you couldn't tip electronically on the app. And whenever this question sort of came up in the tech sphere, it was like the CEO and the leadership do not want you to tip on the app. Like, And it was this frustrating thing because you're like, why won't this work? And finally, that feature came out on Uber. It was like, you can do it. And it made it so that Lyft was just my preferred platform because I want to be able to tip them. I never have cash. The whole point I'm using this app right. is so I can be able to do it. Right. And so you see these sort of frustrating things that sort of occur um, in these tech spaces. And so and there can be a lot to it. But um, so I'm really, I'm sort of hopeful. Uh, Jack's net worth is uh, right around $11.8 billion. So I don't think he's going to be hurting. He's, <laughs> he's sure. going to be absolutely sure. fine. Uh, but I'm sure it was sort of a, uh, a, a very sad day when anyone, when a founder has to step down and, and, and take a slightly different role, um, you know, and so we're going to have to see kind of where, where Jack decides to go with this. Uh, but I, I, while I'm sad, you know, when you're a founder, I'm sure that, that this must be a difficult time for him. Uh, but I'm, I'm very excited for Twitter. I'm really hoping that under some new leadership that it can kind of go in a, you know, in a new, more exciting direction. And, and we can kind of see some some features that I think we've, we all want Twitter to sort of hang around, but we also need it to kind of grow and evolve and, and become better because it just needs a little bit of love, you know? <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm with you. I'm with you. So um, also, uh, you know, speaking of CEOs, uh, what's going on in the Elizabeth Holmes trial? Because that thing is just starting to become more and more of like, it's like a soap opera, man. All this new stuff keeps coming out. It becomes more and more controversial. It is a soap opera. So there were a, a number of, of gasp moments that happened with the Elizabeth Holmes. And if you haven't been paying attention, it's the CEO of Theranos, which has been under fire. And we've reported on this quite a bit about the biotech company that was supposedly able to use one drop of blood to determine all of these uh, possible maladies or pathologies that you would have. And uh, there was the recent calling of Elizabeth Holmes to the stand, which just added to the courtroom drama um, itself. And so, or at least it presenting her evidence. One of the things that came out in Ars Technica and the article of all of the ways that we have been surprised is that she was totally justifying every action that she had had been a part of, some of which were kind of surprising. So one of them that I was really taken aback by was during a report that she had given to, I don't know if it was Walgreens, um, about a very Theranos thing that she actually put the logos of some of the biotech companies. So it was Pfizer and I think, uh, was it Bristol-Myers Squibb was the other one? Uh, but there were a couple there were a couple logos she put on top of it now i don't know if you've ever worked with uh company marketing and communications departments before but that logo is a precious thing you can't just use that that that's essentially creating letterhead um to show something official coming from one of those sources so if she's forging for lack of a better word um company letter letterhead to talk about the efficacy of her product uh, then that is that is pretty bold and pretty terrible. But the response of why she did it was, well, I, I wanted to give them credit for the work that they did. 
Yeah. It was kind of like a, that was the moment when I read that. I was just very, very surprised that it was going to the level of of claiming that this was an appropriate way to credit a source. Granted, I'm sure she took a basic English class and she knows how to credit a source through a citation because you learn that in any kind of research paper. Uh, but to do it through the, the the borrowing of a logo without a logo without permission and then putting that at the top of your paper as if it were stationary coming from that source um, is indicative of, of dishonesty. Uh, there were the uh, reports that were coming out of uh, her blaming every decision that she made on, on the forecasting of the financial model that they have on her former boyfriend, the, I think, chief operating officer at the time, and saying, I just worked with the information I was given. I had nothing to do with it. It was all in good faith. And so all of the books that looked like they, they were projecting some different company than ours, she just put it all on him. It's like, nope, I was just trusting him. Oh, geez. How could this be seen as anything? I, I, I don't know how you can't see this as fraud. I mean, I, 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 guess, I, I guess I'm a little confused. I mean, we're going to see kind of what happens as this trial concludes. But forging, I mean, putting people's logos on letterhead, and I mean, it's forging documents from, from what I can see. You know, to be fair, this is what I noticed in the article. And there's more. there's actually a number of things that were point by points of like, oh, my gosh, she did that. Oh, my gosh, she did that. Um, I can't tell how much is pearl clutching and how much of it is real, to be very honest with everybody. But Elizabeth Holmes was not painted as a good person to begin with. I mean, there's been kind of her character on display in all of this. And I'm certainly concerned because to dupe someone in biotech is an extra kind of sin. It's one of those things where if you're going to entrust your health to someone, this is what we're not talking about. If you're going to entrust your health to someone, I don't know if she's better or worse than many a CEO who goes about this, but I'm not sure that we have the extra layer of legal ethics to understand that you don't mess with people's health data. You don't mess with people's need to depend on healthcare delivery services or healthcare technologies intentionally because the stakes are so much higher. It's not just money, it's their well-being. And I think that that's the undercurrent that we're not talking about in the Theranos case, that we're all upset about it. And again, I don't know how much better or worse is she that, that, that Elizabeth Holmes is than, than any other CEO. And from the beginning, they've been playing her as someone who's been faking it till she made it. And like all the things that she thought she did, she represents a generation of, of innovators who would put profit before product, who really didn't employ the, the ethical decision-making that we're making an example out of. But I think in addition, we don't have the words, the appropriate words or advanced understanding of business ethics for these biomed or biotech kind of stories yet to appropriately address them in a unified way. So we're kind of coming across this as getting it just on the legal, just on her character, just on these other things, but not not taking into account that there's more to it than just that. Yeah, and I think, and you and I have talked about this before, it's it's not uncommon for some of these companies to have technology that sort of works, that yeah. or or it's theory or, you know, because they're, they're trying to drum up money for investors. But yeah, when it comes to biotech, um, and because of the level, I guess, in this trial that you're seeing is, you know, people did submit blood tests, like they did walk away with misinformation. And so we do hold uh, medical products at a very high standard. And I, and I think we should. I think I think that that is very fair. Uh, but yeah, in this case, it's just the the level of fraud with these pharmacies and, and people who really believe that, you know, this could give them, you know, good, good results. And some of them did get incorrect results and they thought something that wasn't true. I mean, uh, yeah, I do feel like there is this character of who she is and the character of, of many of the people who are in the company that, you know, as we talked about in an early episode, there was a guy who was just signing reports. He never actually went into the office. That's right. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, yeah. Like if, if we see one more story coming out of the Theranos trial where we all act like we're surprised, I think at this point we understand that this was not an honest venture. Like that, that's not a question. It's the the scale to which this was dishonest and the harm that was done out of the actions of the leaders of this of this company. Elizabeth Holmes being one of them, but not the only person involved. Then what? Then then how yeah. do we interpret that? And I think those are the kinds of questions that we're waiting to have answered. Yeah, no, I, it's definitely a story of interest. I know that I'm constantly just kind of updating my Google News feed to kind of see what's the latest that's kind of coming out of this trial because every week there is something that's more like 
controversial than the last. It's like, well, these people were rubber stamping reports and never actually showed up. And now she's falsifying documents. I mean, it just gets more sensational as the, as the weeks turn on. Yeah. yeah, it gets bad. And I do hope that we get past that soon. Well, so something else that I think is just uh, very interesting, uh, but a part of me died on the inside. Guess what the word of the year is that is being added to the, uh, I believe it's the Collins Dictionary Company picked for the word of the year. Pumpkin pie. <laughs> no, <laughs> that would be horrible, horrible, horrible. But the uh, dictionary Collins, uh, I'm sorry, the, the uh, dictionary maker Collins has picked NFT as the word of the year. Non-fungible tokens? Yes, that is correct. Okay. That's for anybody working with their Scrabble <laughs> board and they've got three letters. You've heard it here first, folks. Wow. Uh, okay. Yeah. It, it, and I think uh, for, for those of you, I, I'm sure many of you probably heard NFTs have certainly, uh, we talked about it when it very first came out with uh, when Beeble sold some art as an NFT. That's right. uh, these non-fungible tokens, the ability to sort of buy digital gloating rights to to these creations that are online. Um, you don't necessarily own them. It's not like owning like a patent or a copyright or something like that. The artist still maintains that, but you sort of own the sort of the rights to say you own this thing, but it can still be recreated. It's a very interesting concept, but uh, certainly it has, has entered the lexicon of our world. And so as these dictionary makers typically do is they uh, pick kind of a, a word of the year. So yeah, so NFT is going to be around for a little while, I think. So I have not yet purchased one. So um, I've had some friends that have purchased some zombies and they have made some money off of them. Some of these digital zombies. So interesting. Can you tell me what a digital zombie is? It, it is literally a picture of a like 16 bit zombie with his tongue sticking. Oh, out. you actually mean a zombie. Yeah. It's actually like a, like a okay. clip art version of a zombie that they bought for $400 and they sold for, I think like 6,500 bucks. I don't even know what to tell It's you. weird. It's very weird. That is, so. that is totally wild. So Okay, so we know that if you're playing Scrabble, we've got our <laughs> word of the year. Uh, we know that there are more media circuses going around about lots of individuals. Uh, okay, Matt, do you have any news stories on your favorite company of all time? <laughs> Which one's my favorite company of all time? We all know your favorite company of all time. Which one? Not, Which one? <laughs> I don't think I have a favorite company. Yes, you do. It's Apple. Come on. No, it's not my favorite company. I've known you long enough to know that you love yourself some Apple. I, I, I do like my Apple products, but it's not my favorite. I, I, I try to be fair. I try to be a little critical of Apple on occasion. But um, yeah, I do. I try to be. Okay. I try okay. to be. Okay. You know, I'm not perfect, but I, you know, I try to be. Uh, you know, it, it, Apple did have some interesting news this week. Um, Ars Technica reported that um, Apple is suing the Israeli spyware group NSO. Uh, and this is long overdue. For those of you that aren't aware of the NSO group, uh, the NSO group uh, has created some spyware technology that um, when it is deployed, which this was a very frightening security thing when it came out, um, was it has this technology without a user even really clicking on anything, can embed spyware on iPhones and can also embed this into Android phones. And um, NSO has been in the news a lot this year just because when they developed this technology, it was, trust us, we are going to use this for uh, with the good guys. We're, we're not going to be giving this technology out to the bad guys. Trust us. We're, we're going to do some uh, vetting uh, with folks. They really haven't been doing a lot of vetting. It was later on discovered that this technology was um, on journalists' phones, on people who are involved in human rights, and um, a lot of governments with that are very bad actors in, in the global community um, were leveraging this technology from the NSO group uh, to monitor, you know, a, a lot of people. And so it was it was discovered that this technology, this spyware was actually on a variety of people's phones. Um, Apple has since then released some emergency patches to try to prevent this. Um, but I, I think it I think it made a lot of sense. So one of the aspects of the story was Apple, which they typically do they try to be very nice and try to be very, I mean, I think Apple always tries to take a very professional, very polished approach to a lot of things, uh, was actually said, uh, you know, and this is a quote from an article in Ars Technica that um, Apple called the NSO group uh, notorious amoral hackers uh, that act as mercenaries, creating a cyber surveillance machinery that invites routine and flagrant abuse. 
uh, for commercial gain. I mean, that is a pretty harsh criticism coming from Apple. That is harsh. Yeah. That is harsh. Yeah. And, uh, and again, you know, um, what it went on the article to say, which I thought was was interesting, was the U.S. company accused the NSO of violating multiple federal and state laws, are, you know, arising out of their egregious, deliberate, and concerted efforts in 2021 to target and attack Apple customers. So, so Apple is going after them. They're saying that these are our Apple customers and uh, we're fighting back. So um, I, from what I can recall, I never have seen Apple sort of say, these are our customers and we're tired of this. And this is a company that is hacking into Apple products and they're fighting back. And uh, if I, I don't know of many organizations with the cash that Apple has, so I would not be wanting to go against their legal team. Um, I, if I was the NSO, I would be pretty concerned. Uh, but, you know, the other the other flip side of this, which I think was also sort of um, explored this week, is the NSO group, if they still have the ability to get information, um, they could still have some government organizations out there that also have some deep pockets as well. So I think that they, that... And they, in fact, do. Yeah. Notably, yes. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see if, if any other sort of government organizations decide to come forward to try to help NSO group. Um, I, I It's it's going to be really hard to tell. So because we have the technology, we have surveillance technology, uh, that is very important to not only government organizations, but private organizations, uh, military use, a lot of those type of things. Because a lot of these, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that want to monitor people, and so. Uh, but I, I thought I thought this was an interesting thing to see Apple kind of going after people. So uh, when you saw this, uh, what what did you think? I mean, is it is it kind of enough is enough? You know, for so Apple, the the Pegasus program is something that we've talked about before, and it is alarming. And it actually made me think, and more along the lines of the second thing you just mentioned, of there are deep pockets on the other side of the Pegasus argument too that. I think might be more terrible when we actually realize what they look like, although I don't know yet. Uh, the case in point, um, if you do watch The Dissident, which I, I do think is an interesting movie, uh, which talks about the demise of Jamal Khashoggi, the journalist uh, from Saudi Arabia who was murdered in Turkey by the by Saudi uh, military officials and in, in their embassy. It was quite a wild story. Uh, they also talk about how the Pegasus software was used to blackmail Jeff Bezos. And so if you can imagine here a software that's being used, and it, this was known if, if we all remember that there was a news story that had leaked, that there were pictures of Bezos with um, another woman or something that, that insinuated that he was having an affair and it attacked his personal life and it became very public and yada yada. So it's one of these careful who you mess with things that may or may not come to light just how careful you should be because Jeff Bezos is not a small figure. Um, and I don't know how his fortunes compare to those of, of Apple, uh, but there might be these kinds of wars that are going on also Game of Thrones style uh, between who can do more harm to whom and what that's actually going to look like in terms of our futures as audience spectators of what we can expect and how stuck in place we're going to be by these giants going to war with each other of, of who can use technology to get more on the next individual or the next group or and I, I think that apple you know to make their stand is making their stand they have every right to make their stand and uh as you said they tend to be a little bit on the more diplomatic side traditionally so there's just some strong feelings here but same token like i don't know where it's going to go yeah, and I and I want to just remind our listeners, while this is horrible that NSO was using this technology to not in a good way. Um, so th if you look this up, you will see how they are using this and, and these organizations are using their technology to monitor people. Um, this is not uncommon. So a lot of government organizations and private organizations, when they discover vulnerabilities in phones or in software and operating systems, there is a lot of advantage to not telling anybody. And they sort of create these vulnerability stockpiles and they keep them and they will leverage them to gain information or to surveil people or those type of things. They, they do not always share this with like Apple or Microsoft say, hey, we discovered this vulnerability because sometimes these organizations keep them because they want to leverage them somehow. So the NSO group knew about this vulnerability in the iPhone and they 
sold the ability for people to be monitored, um, where government organizations just sort of hold on to these things. And there has been sort of this ongoing sort of philosophical discussion of, is this right? Is this right for us just to be kind of keeping these vulnerabilities to ourselves because they're used against each other. And, and like you mentioned, kind of giants, there's also these big countries that are, you know, this cyber warfare and monitoring each other and kind of using these holes and these leaks to be able to get information. Um, you know, sh should we come up with, you know, sort of a, uh, a peace accord on this kind of stuff and say, the world is better when we're all more secure? And should we tell these organizations when there's holes? Uh, because some of these things can be really, really bad. And like you said, with, with Jeff Bezos or with many people, our phones are an extension of our lives that contain a ton of information. And with this technology, it was exposing a lot of info on people's phones. It's like, there's passwords, credit cards, photographs, there's all these things, it's an extension of ourselves. And so, uh, in, in this is really the tip of the iceberg because we have seen other sort of uh, holes in different sort of systems that have exposed a lot of personal data. And so, yeah, so th this is gonna be interesting. Uh, and like I said, I think this is the first time that Apple is fighting back. Um, I, it will be interesting to see, you know, as we see these organizations, you know, like we had a US-based company uh, that also said they had the ability to break into iPhones to be able to help law enforcement. Will we see Apple go forward and say, no, you're you're hacking into our platform, that isn't right. Will we see this sort of become a new trend coming forward that these companies are saying, you're not allowed to compromise our systems, you need to tell us what the problem is or or you just simply can't do it. You know, so anyway, it's gonna be, it's gonna be kind of interesting to see, but I'm glad to see that, um, and there was also, you know, I would highly recommend that you all read that article for us. There's also some trade sanctions that have been put against uh, not only the NSO group, but also they have a competitor as well. Uh, so I think that uh, um, it's going to be interesting to see kind of what happens and then uh, what, you know, Apple versus NSO, we're going to have to see kind of what they come to trial with, because I think both of them are going to bring a lot of resources to try to uh, fight this. So, Wow. Thank you, Matt, for leaving us with such an uplifting story um, as we tend to do it in our... I have an uplifting story to be, able to, to be able to round us off. What's our uplifting story? Clippy is back. <gasps> you mean from when I would turn on Microsoft yeah. Office? Do Do you want to type up a resume? Do you want to type a, that annoying uh, paperclip? Uh, and some, some of our listeners might be uh, too young to remember Clippy, but Clippy was an annoying bouncing paperclip that every time you opened Word would show up and say, can I help you write a letter? Can I help you uh, write a resume? Do you, do you remember Clippy? <laughs> it looks like you're trying to write a business letter. <laughs> do you want some suggestions? It was before there was a voice that talked to you, like, you know, a, a Google Home device. But yeah, the, the paperclip would show up and with big googly eyes and, and say, it looks like blank. Or yeah. we would offer suggestions. It certainly was Google Home before Google Home existed and for Microsoft. Yeah, and he and, and Clippy was made famous in a lot of like cartoons. They would make fun of him. Uh, would bring up, and yeah, he was the annoying office assistant that would sort uh -huh. of show up. Yeah. Uh, but it was when I worked at Hewlett Packard uh, as an intern. They also you also had the ability to create like an out in Outlook. You could leave the assistant running, and you could choose Clippy, a dog, or a cat. Or I think there was like a little robot. And you could leave it running on your desktop. And so Clippy or one of these little characters would show up holding an envelope because it was sort of a big thing in like the 90s and early 2000s to have something animated, like holding up a little envelope to let you know you had an email. Nowadays, uh, nobody would want this because everybody just true. leaves their email running. They, they would not wait for like a little dog to be no, showing no, no, up no, with no. an envelope. And you get so much email. I should, <laughs> God, if you looked at my work email right now, oh my God. <laughs> But yeah, it, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, uh, Microsoft announced that in the Windows 11 update, they are bringing Clippy back, uh, like a little emoticon version of Clippy, as well as a number of redesigned emojis. So, so Clippy has returned. So, uh, if you feel so compelled, you can be able to drop a little Clippy emoticon uh, okay. inside your uh, in, in, inside your documents, I guess, if you really want to add a little bit extra flair for sure. That was a little bit of an uplift. Thank you for that, Matt. <laughs> hey, we covered Microsoft. We talked Apple, Twitter. We, we didn't talk about Amazon or uh, Tesla. We got we, we got Bezos in there, although that's... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We slept in Okay, no, no, we, we got our giants in there, and we, of course, had our COVID corner today. So it looks like we had 
as we do every week, a great tech and science podcast brunch. Uh, we're always happy to deliver that news to you. We're always happy to share with you that weekend. Uh, we're always happy to hear from you, to have you subscribe to us, to continue listening to us. And we're always happy to encourage you to continue to eat brunch and then change the world. Have a great week, everyone. Do you miss Clippy? Are you going to turn Clippy on? Is that going in the bloopers? I hope you didn't record that. <laughs> no, 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 it's still, it's still recording. I, I, I tried to say that for the bonus clip. Okay, you, you, you want to eat some dinner? Uh, brunch, I mean. Brunch? <laughs> Whatever we're eating right now. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Sunday Brunch. Before we go, show some love to our podcast by leaving us a review. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or you can check out our website at sundaybrunchpodcast.org. You can also reach out to the podcast via email at thesundaybrunchpod at gmail.com. That email address again is thesundaybrunchpod at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voicemail, and this is for U.S. callers only, at area code 970-627-7445. Again, that phone number is 970-627-7445. Thanks again, and we hope you will join us next week.